Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews or an Evangelical Encounters Restoration. So look, folks, uh, this continuing little series that we're doing about various books that Nathan is taking from his uh, proverbial bookshelf, although more metaphorical because he hasn't had a hard copy yet. Uh, yeah. But basically, I want to thank you, Nathan, for uh, coming back onto the program. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me again, Steve. So uh, basically, I don't know what uh, Nathan is going to, uh, what book he is going to be talking about. Uh, so it can be a complete surprise to me, uh, but that kind of keeps me my, on my feet and I like a good challenge. But he also gets to tell a little bit of his story and uh, where he's at based on the kind of books that he's been engaging throughout the years. So Nathan, without further ado, what do we got today? Well, today I have a book for you entitled The Ego Tunnel. The Science of the Mind and the Myth of the Self. And it's written by a German professor of philosophy named Thomas Metzinger. Of course. And it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making it easy for you this no, time, huh? <laughs> uh, at least it's not Zizek. That was, that, yeah. was a, that was hardball. Um, so the Ego Tunnel was published in 2009. And uh, if I remember correctly, I first encountered this book around 2016 or 17. Um, it was around, it may have even been like 18 or 19, but it was around the time uh, that um, Thomas Metzger actually was interviewed by Sam Harris on Sam Harris's podcast, um, Waking Up. I think he's since changed the title of it, but at the time I think it was called Waking Up with Sam Harris. But um, I was just, I was really taken with this, this philosopher. And uh, Thomas Metzinger, if I remember correctly, I think Metzinger is Buddhist, but I don't know for sure. So I, I would take that with a big fat grain of salt. But um, Metzinger is fascinating because he's a philosopher by training, but he's done so much research into modern neuroscience. So he's, he's um, created this philosophy, or at least he's created this body of work that's been very conversant between like philosophy of mind, which has classically been at most like very psychological, um, and brought it into conversation with some of the most modern uh, research in neuroimaging, um, in neuroanatomy, in understanding how the brain works and how it interacts with our sense of self, with our perception of the world. It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating body of work that Thomas, Thomas Metzinger has put together. Um, so Metzinger, in my view, I don't know if he directly references Immanuel Kant a uh, very famous philosopher from Europe, um, but he seems to be kind of in that lineage. So Kant's biggest, well, one of Kant's biggest uh, contributions to the world, philosophical world was um, he wrote a great deal about the difference between reality in itself and reality as we perceive it. So he, on a philosophical level in the European intellectual tradition sort of did a lot of legwork trying to help people understand that there is this very sharp distinction between an object and what your senses can tell you about that object, what your mind can understand about that object. So Kant did a lot of research that helped us to understand the distinction between objectivity and subjectivity. Um, and one of Kant's, I, I don't think he was a direct student, but he was definitely an admirer, uh, was Arthur Schopenhauer, who wrote this really giant book that I will not subject you to, Steve, I promise, um, called the, the World as Will and Representation. And Schopenhauer basically took Kant's view um, and 
basically built upon it. So according to Schopenhauer, we don't experience the world in and of itself. We don't experience reality, reality in and of itself. We experience what he called representation. So our nervous system and our senses have this um, way of distilling an otherwise highly complicated uh, world into this sort of low resolution uh, copy of the world. So what we experience, like directly what you and I experience is constructed from a nervous system that sort of sifts through the data of this highly dense, uh, highly complicated, highly vast world that he referred to as pure, uh, I won't try German, uh, but pure will. Um, and and for, for Schopenhauer, he basically said that, that reality in and of itself is just pure will. It's just pure, uh, we could even say drive or impulse. It's just like a doing. It's not necessarily um, like intellectually orchestrated. There's not necessarily like a purpose or a reason to it. It's just this, this, ur, this urge of things that happen. And then we experience it through representation. So these these uh, distilled images. So just real quick, so when, when this book you were just talking about, um, when was this book written? The World as Will and Representation, I think is from the 19th century. Okay, so that sounds, I'm just, when you're when you're talking about the will, the will that is very very uh, the ethos of national socialism. Mm. Um, yeah. As, as so, was he influential in uh, in that area? Schopenhauer, I don't believe, was influential in in okay. national socialism. I think that um, the will that a lot of the the Nazi thinkers had, they tried this with 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 Nietzsche as well, and they tossed him out very early because then they found that he hated Germany and. <laughs> hated ideology in general but um so the will i think that that to distinguish the will that like nazism had in mind versus like the will that schopenhauer had in mind was that um there's this sort of like animalistic will that the that nazism really valorized this almost like warrior like mentality um and what schopenhauer is describing is essentially just a blind force of nature okay so it's just it, it it's something that's actually quite uh, common and maybe like more modern materialist viewpoints. So it's just nature doesn't have some sort of intent for what it does. It's just kind of this giant complex object in motion. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then so so the, the running theme here for Kant and Schopenhauer, and this brings us to Metzinger, is this idea that we're just that our senses, our nervous system, our brains, our minds, whatever we want to focus in on there, um, distill reality, it boil reality down to some really essential, low resolution um, simulations of the real thing we could say. Hmm. So uh, Metzinger's biggest contribution though, is he brings a lot of neuroscientific data to the subject here. So the ego tunnel is written for a general audience, which is, um, you know, people like myself, when, especially when I first encountered it, but he did write one that's a little more um, scientifically involved. So if someone is maybe trained in neuroscience or interested in neuroscience, uh, the bigger, more uh, research-oriented version would be Being No One, The Self-Model Theory of Subjectivity, which he published in 2004. So, um, but to just jump into Metzinger's uh, work, which builds on what we were talking about with Kant and Schopenhauer here. Um, it's important to really emphasize that we're not talking about solipsism here. So in, in classical Greek thought, there was this concept called solipsism, which believed that nothing exists outside of your head. It's a very interesting, almost like narcissistic um, philosophy. I don't, 
think it was terribly popular. I don't know. I'm not very good at the history of uh, Greek thought, but uh, this is not solipsism. In fact, uh, Metzinger in the Ego Tunnel says this, quote, yes, there is an outside world, and yes, there is an objective reality, but in moving through this world, we constantly apply unconscious filter mechanisms. And in doing so, we unknowingly construct our own individual world, which is our quote unquote reality tunnel, end quote. So that's where the title ego tunnel is starting to come in. So we sort of, uh, he, he creates this image of us like tunneling through an especially dense reality, uh, dense with potential sensory data, dense with information, dense with experiences. And we, in distilling that process, are sort of just tunneling through it. We have a tight space in which we uh, perceive the world. So that's a lot about perception. But Metzinger's theory is, is very much centered on our sense of self, how we, how we see ourselves as like a center of agency and of personhood. And he says that this essentially evolved to, and, and Metzinger is, again, uh, an atheist. He is uh, drawing on evolutionary theory as well. So we're going to be presuming things like natural selection and the like. Um, so he describes the sense of self, though, as having evolved to help us engage with the relevant aspects of our environments. So uh, the quote that he has here is, quote, the conscious experience of being a subject, of being a self, arises when a single organism learns to enslave itself. So we have this really interesting capacity as human beings called, um, it's, there's a lot of terms, but the term that I like is metacognition. So meta means like beyond something. And then cognition obviously just means like thought. So having this capacity for metacognition means that not only do we think, but we can think about thinking. We can reflect upon our thoughts. So that's this sense of consciousness that we can, we can, not only carry out a, a function, but we can look at that function, look at its results and try to change up how we do things. So, um, but he, he describes our sense of self as largely evolved to help us navigate that distilled environment that we create in our brains. Okay, so just real quick, I, what, where would he be on the idea of free will? Where, where would he land on that? Because it sounds to me that you are trying, you know, you know, so I'm saying like how much of this is actually even in your control at this point? Metzinger is very much a determinist, mm -hmm. um, but it would be important to note too that he might be something more like um, a, there's this, this uh, philosophy called compatibilism. And so it's, it's not quite libertarian free will and it's not quite determinism. It's more like this idea that freedom lies in the ability to be what you are. Um, as opposed to being forced to be something you are not. Okay. But, uh, but otherwise, yes, Metzinger is, is very much a determinist, but it, it would be important to note too, though, that there is a caricature of determinism that sees people as, it, it's, it insists that determinists think people are unchanging, that they can't um, learn from their choices or change their character. And that's untrue. It just means that cosmically speaking, your actions are in a sense determined by forces other than yourself. So there, there's obviously a very long conversation that could be had there, but Metzinger does indeed or, uh, fall more on the deterministic side of things. Okay. So, um, but what's really interesting here is that, um, so while Schopenhauer pointed out a whole lot about how we distill our perception of reality into this like very low res, uh, almost like, 
the, the way that we experience reality versus reality itself is almost like a photograph versus the experience that we took the photograph at. So it's like the difference between seeing like a picture of your friends at the pyramids of Giza and actually having been there yourself. Like the reality that we don't have access to is like going to the Giza pyramids themselves. And all we have is the photograph. So Schopenhauer did a lot uh, to, to write about per human perception in general, but uh, Metzinger brings this also to how we perceive ourselves. Um, what he calls, uh, what, what has been called like an ego. So the, again, this is the ego tunnel now. So um, Metzinger really points out that our understanding of ourselves, our perception of ourselves is also similarly very distilled and very low resolution compared to um, the real deal, so to speak. And therefore it's, it's kind of fluid. So there's uh, some really interesting ways in which we, um, he, he points to some certain neural disorders neurological disorders that kind of help point, a, point out to how our, our mind takes in all this sensory data and it weaves it into a virtual world. So he points to things like this condition called disjunctive agnosia, which basically just means that the things you hear and the things you see are out of sync with each other. So there's this, it's a condition in which the brain is un, incapable of taking separate sensory uh, inputs sight and sound and weaving them together into a seamless world. But he also points out how the self can also be, uh, our sense of self can also be quite strange. There's this very famous experiment called the rubber hand experiment. So a subject would be sat at a table and they would be told to put both of their hands on the table. One of those hands would be curtained off so they wouldn't be able to see it. And instead they would able to be able to see a rubber hand that was like, it looked like their hand. They knew it's a, they know it's a rubber hand. Of course, they know what's going on, but their hand is, is curtained off and instead it's replaced with this rubber hand. And so they would do things like um, tickle this rubber hand and they would feel it. They, they would feel it down to the point where I think at one point in the experiment, they actually smack the rubber hand and the, the subject will recoil like they've been injured. So there's this um, sense in which the brain maps the body in a very fluid way to the point that you can almost convince yourself that this rubber hand is a part of yourself. We see it in how we use tools as well, uh, including in experiments with like, uh, I think with monkeys in particular, but there's this sense in which the brain will, after using a tool for long enough, map it out as if it's just an extension of the body. And I'm, I'm a big fan of martial arts as well. And this is something that you'll hear a lot with traditional martial artists who use like weapons like swords or staffs or anything like that. The weapon is an extension of your body. There's a neurological sense in which that's true. So there's a very fluid sense of uh, how we understand our bodies even. So um, kind of to just bring this home, there's um, Metzinger makes a lot of... Uh, uh, he draws a lot of attention to sleeping so and what it can teach us about consciousness so when you sleep you get your you start at a wakeful state and then you go down to dreaming and then you go down to deep sleep where there's no dreaming whatsoever so when you go into a deep sleep state your sense of self just disappears entirely so if you fall asleep go into a deep sleep state for like eight hours and come back out you as far as you are concerned just sort of blink uh, and you're back to waking up. You see this with anesthesia as well, for instance, in surgeries. There's, there's no, for you, there's not even a blank. It's just gone. 
it's just a, a segment of your, your life that is just not there. Um, but Metzinger draws a lot uh, on how dreaming is very neurologically similar to waking states because dreaming is essentially when your brain starts constructing an experience without sensory data, without external sensory data, without seeing things, hearing things that aren't you. Um, and we can see this from like the, the transition point when people start waking up. Maybe you're like dreaming about having a, a dinner with an especially attractive person and the waiter walks up to your table and starts suddenly knocking on the table and you're suddenly getting confused as why are you knocking on the table? And then you wake up and you realize someone's knocking on your door. So there's this um, invasion of external sensory data and your experience begins to change, but it doesn't go from being a different kind of experience to another kind of experience. It just goes from being one experience that's illustrated with internal data to one that's illustrated with external data. So your brain is interpreting that sound, uh, the external sound, but it's still within the context of your dream state. So it needs to create that waiter to knock on the table to make sense, to make sense of what that sound would be. Exactly. It's like blending the data that you get from the outside and the data that you already have on the inside. Um, dreaming is actually a really interesting process because neurologically speaking, it seems that dreams are actually when we take short-term memories and we catalog them into long-term memories. This is, you can see this in, in interesting ways, like um, children who grow up in abusive homes, for instance, will frequently have nightmares. So they, they have this sense in which these traumatic experiences that they have in their waking life are almost in a manner of speaking, re-experienced as they try to transition those short-term memories into long-term memories. Mm. It's um, another actually very interesting example of this would be coma dreams. So really fascinatingly, like when people get into comatose states, it's not uncommon. I don't know how frequent this is, but it's not uncommon to hear a person come out of a coma and say like all these experiences that they had essentially while they were comatose. So there's this one, this one patient I heard about from a psychiatrist who was in his residency at the time. He was called in to deal with this patient uh, who had been in a motor vehicle accident. He had been in a uh, coma for about two months and uh, he had woken up. He seemed to be physically fine. His family was happy to see him. His, his uh, job said like, take your time. Uh, you'll have a job waiting for you when you get out of the hospital. And his insurance was good. So like there, so he was well off as far as all these measures that we would consider, but the nurses and the doctors were saying that when he thinks no one's looking, he cries. And so they brought the psychiatrist in to try to figure it out. They screened him for depression and it, you know, he wasn't depressed, uh, at least according to the screening. And he went through all sorts of things like, are you having suicidal thoughts and all this? And uh, the man said, no, no, none of that. And finally, after like two or three days, the psychiatrist had built some rapport with the patient. And he finally just said like, look, I don't know what's going on here, but the nurses, you're like freaking the nurses out. You know, they say that you're crying when no one's looking like what's wrong. And he looks at the doctor, the psychiatrist, and he says, you got to understand that. Well, or, well, he says, essentially, you wouldn't understand. And he says, well, try me. I'm a psychiatrist. Well, you know, let's see how, uh, how crazy this could be. Um, and the man says that when he was in his coma, he had a completely different life. He has memories that he says are inseparable from the memories that he has of what we would refer to as his real life. But instead, they're memories of having completely different children, being married to a completely different woman, uh, working in a completely different profession. And he even has specific memories, like 
his uh he says that, like his his wife uh was out of town once and his daughter got her first period that time so he had to go buy pads for her like it's it's such a fascinating thing that these were indistinguishable experiences for him at least to the point that he says to the psychiatrist i cry because i'm never going to see my little girls again wow so he's yeah he's going through this concrete grieving process that strictly speaking we might say he never actually experienced in the first place so that's a very extreme example of something that metzinger is talking about about how our brains sort of subjectively create our experience of reality including our our own understanding of ourselves but the 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 interesting thing about this is that uh he says that um in in philosophy there's this concept called transparency so transparency is when something is so fundamental to how you experience the world that you seldom, if ever, actually realize that it's there. So we ourselves seldom, if ever, realize that our brains and our minds are doing this, that they're, that they're constructing this experience in this way, in the same way that like, I'm very seldom conscious of the lenses of my glasses. They're just, they're just there. They're just transparent and I just see the world. And then sometimes if they're crooked, I remember, oh, I have glasses. So it's, it's similar to this. He, uh, he says actually in this quote here, quote, the ego, our sense of self, our, our sense of being a self in this virtual, like, you know, neurologically constructed experience of the world is simply the content of your phenomenal self model at this moment, your bodily sensations, your emotional state, your perceptions, memories, acts of will, thoughts, but it can become the ego only because you are constitutionally unable to realize that all this is just the content of a simulation in your brain. It is not reality itself, but an image of reality and a very special one indeed. The ego is a transparent mental image. You, the physical person as a whole, look right through it. You do not see it. You see with it. The ego is a tool for controlling and planning your behavior and for understanding the behavior of others, end quote. Very interesting. Very interesting, Nathan. So a lot of food for thought on today's uh, special episode. Uh, uh, well, that's a lot of stuff there you threw at me. Yeah, Very yeah. interesting. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. yeah, I, yeah, it, man, it's like, I, well, I got it. That's a lot of food for thought and I, I really can't process it. It's very interesting no, a, to think, but I, but I do lot. have to say is that, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, I do deal with a lot of people that have kind of like a literalistic fundamentalist mindset. And I feel like there's almost in such a bubble of the, their world is so small and the, and the blinders are on. And it's like, they don't, they don't really even understand the world that we live in. And so I think part of the problem that I see on my side is, is this world is kind of unraveling in some ways, America especially. Um, they just don't, they don't have the tools to be able to deal with reality, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I hear you talk like this, it's like, man, there's so much more going on up here than most people realize. And to not be cognizant of that, uh, boy, oh, you know, I feel bad yeah. for you. <laughs> well, I, I think a big problem too is that um, there's this psychologist named Adam Grant. He's he's made a very big point in a lot of his work. Um, and he's written like uh, general audience books. I forget the titles, but he, his big point is to not let your ideas become your identity. 
Mm, yeah. because what because ideas can be fluid they can be unlearned and and like we've been talking about in a lot of ways they can be just very at best they can be low resolution like simulacra of the real deal and at worst they can be dangerous fantasies kind of like what you're indicating here yeah and you know just to be fair folks i i see it on the left you know identity politics and all this kind of stuff there's a lot of scary things going on on the left too that i feel like we're just heading in just this I'm really, I mean, I'm, I don't usually get political and I don't, I'm not actually getting political, but I am very concerned about this world that we're in right now because it just seems like there's, I mean, I personally think America has a mental health crisis. That's our biggest thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in, in the ideology, ideology is just, is, it's poisoned, it's, it's poisoned everything uh, across the board. And we can't even talk to each other anymore. And part of the reason I'm having this channel was it's actually one of the few places where I have right-wingers, uh, left-wing progressives, and everybody in between on my program, believers, atheists, and we're able to have a civil conversation. So I don't know why we're able to, but it's possible. And Absolutely. so, you know, I just want to thank you so much, uh, dude, Nathan, Nathan Smith, is a stu uh, psychology student at Texas State University. Uh, thanks again for joining me today. Um, any final words? Um. I'll leave you with this very, very brief anecdote, and I promise it's brief, I promise. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a French philosopher I really love named Jacques Derrida, and he was raised in um, Algeria, I believe. He was, a Jew he was raised in a Jewish family, and he, uh, he wrote a lot about the problems that we face on an ideological level, and I think it's very relevant to what we face today. Um, and he, he saw an antidote in just developing a healthy skepticism of your own thinking. So the way he would describe that is like he, he talked about the Seder meal that's prepared at Passover, where people will deliberately leave an empty seat for Elijah. And he says that that needs to be our minds. We need to always be leaving a proverbially empty seat for that which we had never considered before that could change everything that we think about. And you know, on a more visceral level, he compared it to circumcision too, where men are always walking around with something that they're missing, essentially. So, you know, there you go. So there you have it. That's cool. Leave That's a cool. seat open for Elijah. <laughs> Leave an open seat. That's awesome. I like that. That's a good, good way to live one's life. Uh, mm -hmm. Have an open mind, keep an open seat, and uh, just engage the world in reality in its in its proper context and don't try to impose something on it that's not true. Um, I want to thank you so much, Nathan, for coming on to the program today. Likewise, man. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to, um, you're welcome. And I'll be having you back, dude. Um, I know school is going to be starting up, so maybe we won't have you on too frequently, yeah. <laughs> but it'll be a while. But you never know, maybe summer break. Um, yeah. I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when a new episode is coming out. You all have yourself a great day.